Um, so yeah, we'll be in Psalm, Psalm 51. Please pray with me before we begin. Lord, I pray that uh, you would meet us here, that through your word, you would speak powerfully to us, that you would give hope to the hopeless, that you would give conviction to the hard-hearted, that we could see you with new eyes and understand something about your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of the most uh, profound theological parables that I know of are in a, a book of, of fictional mystery stories, the Father Brown stories by a writer named G.K. Chesterton. He wrote them like 120 years ago. And Father Brown, is a, he's a Catholic priest who's also like an amateur detective. He just happens to be in the middle of a bunch of murder mysteries, right? Like he lives a very action-packed life. Um, anyway, one of my very favorites is a, is a story called The Chief Mourner of Marne. And um, Marne, the titular character, is a marquee and lives on an estate. I don't know how these things work. Uh, but anyway, the, the Marquis of Marne is a hermit and has been for two decades uh, because 20 years before, he had killed his best friend, a guy named Maurice, in a duel over a woman. Right, like one of those slap you, I demand satisfaction, that, that kind of duel. And... Um, it, the, the story opens with a bunch of people in the town next to this chateau or whatever it is, and they're talking about the Marquis and saying, isn't it awful that he's just still guilting himself over this fair fight? It's tragic, but he needs to move on. And they, they talk about it, how it's rumored that no one goes in and out of the chateau except some priests. And so they have, an, they have a plan that they're going to go up to the chateau and they're going to talk sense to him and, and tell him, you know, hey, like, have a little grace on yourself. Forgive yourself. Move on, you know, because it was a fair fight. It was, it was, it's terrible that it happened, but, you know, you really didn't do anything all that bad. And, and the only person among them who didn't think this was such a great idea was Father Brown himself saying, you're, you're, you're getting into more than you realize. And they start laying into Father Brown. Isn't that just like a priest? Where's your charity? You know, you're going to guilt a guy and suck the blood out of him for 20 years because of what he did 20 years ago in a fair fight over a woman. So they go up, and they come to the chateau. And who comes out the front door but Father Brown? And Father Brown tells them, I've been in to see the Marquis. And he's given me permission to tell you all what happened that day 20 years ago. And he tells them what actually happened is that's not the Marquis at all, but the man that they thought the Marquis had killed Maurice. And here's what had happened. Maurice was an actor and a poor actor. And uh, not, not that he was bad at acting, but he didn't have money. And he had, you know, picked this fight with the Marquis over this woman he had pretended to be shot by the Marquis, fell to the ground, and when the Marquis, you know, filled with remorse, ran over to him to check on, on how his friend was, he rolled over and shot him point blank through the heart. And then he assumed his identity because he wanted his money. Hmm. And Father Brown then says, but since you guys are all so charitable, you can go be reconciled to him. And I'm just going to read you because I can't, I can't talk like Chesterton writes. The general says, hang it all. If you think I'm going to be reconciled to a filthy viper like that, I tell you, I wouldn't say a word to save him from hell. I said I could pardon a regular decent duel, but of all the treacherous assassins, 
Another says, I wouldn't touch him with a barge pole myself. There is a limit to human charity. There is, said Father Brown dryly, and that is the real difference between human charity and Christian charity. You must forgive me if I was not altogether crushed by your contempt for my uncharitableness today or by the lectures you read me about pardon for every sinner. For it seems to me that you only pardon the sins that you don't really think sinful. You forgive criminals when they commit what you don't regard as crimes, but rather as conventions. So you tolerate a conventional duel just as you tolerate a conventional divorce. You forgive because there isn't anything to be forgiven. Boy, I realize that was written a long time ago, but I feel like that describes our society's understanding of sin now. That we are long on excuses. We are long on what we call acceptance. But our version of mercy is to simply excuse things. Right? So, uh, you know, hey, well, yes, they committed this crime, but they're the, they're the product of a brutal system. Or, yes, they did this awful thing, but they're struggling with a mental illness. Yeah, they did this, but you have to realize all these circumstances. And our version of being merciful, of being enlightened, of being gracious is to forgive what we don't consider sin. There's a big problem here. In trying to be gracious, we do something far, far worse. We take away hope for someone who has committed a real sin. For someone who knows they have done something that there is no explaining away. I mean, it's not like we don't condemn people in our culture, right? It's not like we don't believe in something called sin, because just look at, you know, name any high-profile person you want to, Bill Cosby is an example, right? Like, we're not like, oh, he had a hard life, that's why he did that. No, we're like, like can we find a ditch to throw him in, you know? Like, we are, we, are not, we are not forgiving, we are not gracious when it comes to real, actual, indefensible sin. But here's the problem. What is the hope for someone who has committed such a sin? And here's what's worse, is we're going by human standards. Do you understand that in God's eyes, my sin is just as heinous in God's eyes as Bill Cosby's is in the rest of society? And so by trying to excuse every sin, by trying to rationalize and explain it away, we're not being gracious. We don't have a concept of grace or mercy. All we have is excuses, and it doesn't, it doesn't set free the one who is bound in what they know is truly indefensible sin. And if we had eyes to see, we'd see that that's all of us. What do we do? What hope do you have? If you come face to face with someone who's committed a real crime, if you, ever, if you ever have the eyes to see that what we've done is indefensible, what's the hope for someone who is actually convicted of sin and knows that there's no defending it and there's no explaining it away? Take a look with me at Psalm 51. You got the text there. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but the, uh, the little superscription there to the choir master, that's in the original text. A lot of people think that that's like a translator note, but that's actually there. And so this gives us a context for what this psalm is. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. So this is written by David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. 
Some of you don't know this story, so those words don't mean that much. Others know exactly what this story is. This comes to us from 2 Samuel, I believe, chapter 11. David, famous King David, had sent his army off to war, and he was at home in the palace kicking it king style. And he looked out his window, and there was a beautiful woman bathing named Bathsheba. There's no pun there. That's just an accident of English. Okay. And he abuses his kingly power to have her brought into him. And he sleeps with her. A few problems there already, but it's not his wife. And also, she's married to someone named Uriah. So David commits the sin of adultery and forces her to. What makes it worse, she gets pregnant. And David cooks up a terrible plan. He brings Uriah back from the front lines so that he could spend time with his wife and they'll think that he'll think that the child is Uriah's, right? Seems an elegant solution, except that Uriah won't go near his wife. He says, how could I, when my troops are at the front fighting and dying, how could I go hang with my wife? Good question for David too. What's he doing there? You know? And so David comes up with a the worst plan B of all time. He sends Uriah back to the front lines and he instructs one of his commanders. He says, hey, when you're in the battle and Uriah's in the front, withdraw from him so that he'll be surrounded by enemies, he'll be killed. And that's what happens. And some of you are like, I thought David was a hero of the faith. There's no such thing as a hero in the Bible except for God. The Bible keeps it 100% real with us. Like, like, yeah, one of, the, one of the most prominent figures in the faith did this. Something totally indefensible. And then the prophet Nathan comes to him and says, God knows what you did. And he tells him the consequences that are coming his way. And that is the context of this psalm. This is written when David has been confronted and he's convicted of his sin. What hope is there? Because this is low, down, dirty dog stuff. Like this, there's no, oh, David had a hard life. Oh, David had a personality disorder. Oh, David was, no, there's no defense for this. This is, he is a hopeless sinner. What is he to do? Look at how the psalm begins. First one it says, have mercy on me, O God. He doesn't ask for justice. He doesn't say, remember all the good stuff I've done? He says, have mercy on me, O God. On what basis can he ask the judge of all the earth for mercy? He says, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Now, I want you to, to notice that there's an ABBA structure here. Have mercy on me, O God. He wants, he's asking for mercy, according to, according to, and then blot out my transgressions. He, he says the same thing as at the beginning. So it's an A-B-B-A. It's a little mini chiasm is what that's called. And you focus on the middle there. The focus is on God's character. David's one hope is not that he's stored up enough brownie points with God. He knows what he's done is absolutely reprehensible and indefensible. His one hope is that God has a heart for sinners. He knows God. And he knows that God has steadfast love. That's the Hebrew word chesed. It's an important 
word in the Old Testament. It can be translated covenant love or unfailing love. The idea is that God is committed no matter what. That central to God's character is love that binds him to his people. And then his his abundant mercy. And for some of you, this is cognitive dissonance right away. You're like, wait a second. I thought that, you know, we kind of work on our, on our holy resume and turn it into God, and that's how we get, like, favor with God or how we get eternal life, right? And I also thought, like, the Old Testament version of God was, like, way meaner. But what is David, who commits one of the worst sins in the Bible, where does he go? He goes to the God who has a heart for sinners as his only hope. Now, it is possible that this psalm began as a personal prayer, but it didn't end up that way. This psalm is meant for the people of God to sing together. So this is known as a penitential psalm. This is a psalm that leads God's people through repentance. Of course, we have a lot more Bible, don't we, beyond the psalms. We know that because God has a heart for sinners, that eventually God himself becomes a man in the person of Jesus and goes to the cross for us. That is the expression of God's heart for sinners. So what is the hope for someone who knows that they need forgiveness? It's not that you're going to atone for your sin. You can't. It's not that you're going to clean yourself up enough and do enough things to make up for what you've done. But it's that God has a heart for you and for me. God has a heart for sinners. And the the fact that God has a heart for sinners opens up a path out of the, the horrific interior cage that sin traps us in. What is that path? Well, we're going to see it's confess to God, turn to God, walk with God. So because God has a heart for sinners, we need to confess to God, turn to God, walk with God. We, first of all, need to confess to God. What do we need to confess to God? But let, let's, let's read on. So going back from, from verse 1, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For what? For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. The first thing he confesses is what he's done. He's acknowledging honestly, without defense before God, that he has done this. Okay, so confess what we've done. Also, he confesses what he deserves. Look at verse 4. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, He's a, he doesn't deny that he sinned against everybody else, but he's saying sinning against them is sinning against God. And God as judge, whatever, whatever judgments come David's way, he's like, that's fair. I deserve it. So he confesses what he's done. He confesses what he deserves. And he also confesses what he is. Verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, we, we could tend to overread this verse a little bit. One of the great scholars in Christian history, uh, St. Augustine, he actually looked at this and said, hey, that's how, 
you know, it's, it's by the act of conception that sin is transferred. That's what he saw in this verse. Others are like, look, there's moral accountability in the womb, right? Like, I, that's not really the point, right? That's a little bit of an overreading. The point is, is that David is saying, this wasn't, this wasn't an aberration of my character. I've always been broken like this. This is part of who I am. Right? It's, it's not that he's a great guy who committed a sin. He sinned because he's a sinner. That, that's what this is saying. So he confesses to God what he's done, what he deserves, and what he is. And then he, he ends this little section, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. Right? You, you delight in someone confessing, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So the, the beginning of being redeemed from real, actual, indefensible, inexcusable sin is confession. Blatant, honest confession to God about what we've done, what we deserve, and what we are. <laughs> we had one, one time, um, one of our kids, she's not in here right now, so I could say it, um, had done something, I forget what it was. It was, it was ticky-tack kid stuff, right? Like taking candy or whatever, made a mess that she didn't clean up, and, and no one was fessing up to it. You know, we're like, kids, who did this? And they were like, not me, not me. And we knew it was her. Kids, your parents know it's you. They just want you to confess. And so finally, finally, uh, Sharon was like, like kind of gently to, to, to Rivka, was like, hey, it was you, wasn't it? And Rivka's like, yes, it was. Oh, thank goodness you found me out. That was killing me. <laughs> Right, It was like such a relief. We all know this. That when we, we think that we're better off not getting caught with our sin. But the reality is, it will eat you up inside. It is a prison you carry in your soul. And some of you are there right now. One of the hardest things to do is to say those words, even alone to God, is to truly confess what you've done. Now, confession to God, it, it, it might be out, out loud, alone at home. That might be the appropriate way. It, it may be you call up one of our deacons or elders or me, and, and that's how you confess to God. Not that we're God, but that we can, we can walk with you in, in getting free of this sin. Maybe it's writing it down on paper. Whatever it is, you know that this needs to happen. You know that you will not have peace and rest and freedom until you do. God has a heart for sinners like you and me. When we confess to God, we do, not meet, we do not meet an angry judge. We meet someone who's the core of, God, of his character is faithful love and mercy. Confession is, is really, really relieving. For those of you who have had that experience of doing, once you get, once you jump in that cold pool of saying it out loud, you know, uh, you know it's so relieving that, that we can actually stop there. 
right? And, and we miss the rest of the process of repentance, but there's more to it. We not only confess to God, but we turn to God. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. So he turns to God, what? To deal with his sin. These images are very powerful. Verse 7, where he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. He's referring back to a, a ritual in the Levitical code. When someone had leprosy, the priest was to take a hyssop branch and sprinkle them and declare, you are clean. He's saying, God, I'm a leper. I need you to be the priest to cleanse me. He, he, he's saying, he's talking about himself as a filthy garment. Wash me. I'll be whiter than snow. He, 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 he says, blot out all my iniquities. He's imagining a, a law book in which char charges are written and, and God expunging them. That's what he's asking God to do. But you notice, and you're going to notice it through this whole section, is David isn't saying, I'm going to do this, God, and then you'll forgive me. I'm going to make up for what I did. I'm going to feel bad enough long enough. I'm going to, whatever. Right? I'm going to make up for this somehow. You can't. He's completely helpless. And so he needs to turn to God for forgiveness. But that's not all. He also turns to God to change his heart. Look at verses 10 through 11. It says, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. This is what, uh, in theological terms, is called sanctification by grace. I know, termy. Basically what it means is that we need God's activity to make us more like Jesus. Letting go of sin and walking in righteousness is something that God does in us. We participate, we cooperate, but ultimately, ultimately when we repent, it is not us saying, now I'm going to clean myself up and I'm going to fix myself, but it's us turning to God saying, deal with my sin. In our case, David didn't know about Jesus really like we do, right? It's, it's turning to Christ. And it's saying, God, transform the desires of my heart so that I desire your kingdom, so that I desire your will instead of these, these things that bind me and destroy me. And also he turns to God to sustain him. He says in verse 12, restore to me the joy of, of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He, he's saying, in an ongoing way, keep me from further sin. The, the first step is brutally honest confession to God. But then it's not saying, now I'm going to try harder. It's saying, I'm going to turn to God because God alone can deal with my sin. God alone can transform me. Um, famously, uh, there was a, a monk named Martin Luther who, who, uh, who started the whole Protestant Reformation thing. And, and he talked a lot about just this how God is gracious, how God has a heart for sinners. But there was a crisis because that's not what he was taught. There was a crisis that led him to it. You see, he was acutely aware of his own sin. He was acutely aware that he had done evil in the sight of God. And so he became a monk thinking that, you know, well, if I become a monk, that'll, that'll take care of it. I won't sin anymore. I'll be good. And that didn't work. 
And so he used to sit in his little monk, what do you call a monk's cell? A cell? It can't be called that, no. I don't know, whatever monks sit in, that's where he sat. And he would literally whip his naked back for his sins, thinking that if he punished himself hard enough, then, then that would cure him. And it, it, right, it, it didn't work. And the, the glorious realization he came from is that what the scripture actually teaches, how God reveals himself to us, is not as the one who's sitting there judging your performance like Simon Cowell, like, no, that wasn't very good, you know. But instead, is Simon Cowell too dated of a reference, by the way? Some of you young people don't even know. Everybody knows Simon Cowell. He's at least, okay, good. I'm glad. I'm aware of my oldness. <laughs> Look, as I said earlier, God loves us exactly as, as we are. God has a heart for the hopeless sinner. But he also loves us too much to leave us this way. We should be encouraged. God doesn't reject us for our sin. He loves us. When we turn to God, we need to ask for forgiveness. Not based on a promise to do better, not based on the good things we've done, way, you know, kind of, kind of, Take this debt, put it against this credit, and I'll, I'll come out on top. Right, God? No. It doesn't work that way. Instead, we need to ask forgiveness based on what Christ has done for us on the cross. But not only that, we need to ask God to transform us. I don't know how, how I think that this is a, this is maybe undertaught, right? That, that it should be, like repentance isn't like a once a year fireworks occurrence, you know, th this, is, this is block and tackle Christian faith. Th this is something that we need to be doing regularly, is confessing and repenting before God and asking him to change us and transform us. God has a heart for sinners like you and me. But there's also a really important aspect of what happens next, right? Like, I have a friend... Uh, he, he's, a, he's a pastor too, but I've known him since we were teenagers. I, I heard him preach in youth group like hundreds of times. And it was always the case that when he would, he, he liked to say that God is going to change your life. And he would always, always say, God will make your life do a complete 360. He meant 180. <laughs> we all knew he meant 180. But he, and, and every time he would come to that line, I was like, 360, he's going to say 360. 360! I was like, there it was. <laughs> we know he means 180. I never told him. Maybe I should. But the point is, is that part of repentance is that we don't do a 360, right? Like, like coming out of, like the... the the walking in new obedience, like it's 180, not 360. Like we can't be like, I repent and I'm going to go back exactly to what I was doing. I'm not going to change my values. I'm not going to change my habits. I'm not going to change where I go, what I do. You know, I'm just going to keep doing the same stuff. I'm going to womp up some repentance before God. And that's cool. And then I'm, I'm planning to go right back to it. Right? Like, Part of sincere repentance. I hope that wasn't too uncomfortable for any of you. I described your life too much. Um, <laughs> part of sincere repentance. If we're going to honestly confess, if we're honestly going to turn to God, is to also 
endeavor to walk with God. We won't be perfect. We won't be perfect, but you, you, know, you don't set out to fail, do you? We need to walk with God. And that's what, that's what David talks about right here. He, first of all, we need to walk with God in mercy. Uh, verse 13, he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. So you hear that? David, the hopeless sinner, the one who has done indefensible things, he, he's saying, and I'm going to go to other people who sin. I'm going, like, not with a heart of judgment, but with a heart of mercy. He's, gonna, he's going to bring back the lost sheep, right? Is that making sense? So, so we see that he, he, comes out, he's, he comes out of repentance, and as we're being led through this psalm, he comes out to walk with God, first of all, in mercy, and second, in worship. Look at verses 14 through 17. It says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. That is a direct reference to what he did. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Again, that, that, that gets misread sometimes of like, people are like, see, God doesn't want formal worship. He wants informal worship. So, you know, Hawaiian shirts, acoustic guitars, uh, you know, it's not really the point. The point is the heart behind the worship, whether it's formal or informal. If you have an unrepentant heart, you don't care for God's law, if you're utterly comfortable living with your sin, that, that is what makes worship insincere. And so part of walking with God, part of this repentance, uh, part of this process of repentance and walking with God is not only do we begin to walk in mercy and have a heart for sinners like God does, but also we walk in worship. We, we bring sincere worship to God. And for those of you who have had like, like a this experience of God setting you free from something, you know the response is, I, I, I want to go worship God. I want to I pray. I want to sing. I, I want to take the sacrament, right? And lastly, it's to walk in community. In verses 18 and 19, it says, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So this is a picture of the, remember, this is sung in the temple by God's people. Where are they? In Jerusalem. And there is a connection between the people repenting sincerely and God strengthening this community. Like, repentance isn't a private matter. It's personal. But it has an effect on the entire community. God has a heart for hopeless sinners. And we need to walk with God in mercy, in worship, and in community. The, the, this is actually, if you want to like know, how, take the temperature of your soul and say, how, how is my heart towards God? Well, you might be like, I like God so much. Hate these people, <laughs> you know, hate the church, don't really like worshiping. Love God, though. No. Right? A sign that we are actually repentant, a sign that we are growing closer to God, is that we have a heart like God. When we look at, when, when we hear about in the news, 
And Lilia can tell you I had a very ungracious response to something this week, and I, I was convicted by my own sermon when we were planning service. Right? When we see a hopeless sinner, someone who's done something indefensible, instead of you know, reacting in the way uh, that those people in the story, I wouldn't touch them with a barge pole myself. Right? Instead of reacting that way, it's to have a heart like God's to have a heart for the sinner because I'm one too. It's to, it's to be excited and heartfelt in worship. And it's to walk in community. Like, think about this. We want to build a stable, healthy church community. Yeah, we're all on board with that. No one say no. Please no one say no to that. How do we get there? There's a number of things. But the, the more repentant each person inside of our church community is, the more we're going to, as a community, feel like Jesus. The more we're going to have a heart for the sinner like God because we, we don't look down a self-righteous nose. Make sense? The healthier and more healing of a place this becomes, the more repentant each of us are. So this is an absolutely essential message. And for some of you, you're, you've been squirming in your seat this whole time. You're like, how do you know everything going on inside? I want to leave. I, I understand. I want to speak hope to you that God has a heart for sinners like us. And others of you are like, this sermon doesn't apply to me. I don't really have any sin to repent of. Right, that's the problem, is that we're so hard-hearted sometimes we're unaware we don't smell our own, you know what I mean? Guys, don't go to the gutter with that body odor. Come on. I love um, Chesterton um, at the end of that story. Father Brown explains, he says, we have to touch such men, not with a barge pole, but with a benediction. Go on your own primrose path, pardoning all your favorite vices and being generous to your fashionable crimes. Leave us in the darkness to console those who really need consolation, who do things really indefensible, things that neither the world nor they themselves can defend and none but a priest can pardon. Mean as St. Peter when the cock crew, and yet the dawn came. What do we do with actual indefensible sin? Sin that can't be explained away. We turn to God who has a heart for sinners. We confess, we turn to him, and we walk with him. Please pray with me. God, I pray that you would set us free. I pray that you would let us look directly in the face and see, see the many brokennesses inside of ourselves that we need to be set free from. We pray that you would unwind from us the bonds of sin, that you would make us people who are, who are not just growing in righteousness, but growing in mercy for others, that this would be a community where those who have troubled consciences would find healing. In Jesus' name.